This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 7th, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. How should the creators of our defense policy handle risks like terrorism? Should they employ the precautionary principle, which is aimed at preventive action, preemptive action, like a preemptive war? Benjamin H. Friedman is a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at the Cato Institute. He says the precautionary principle is incoherent. And in defense policy, he says any decision we make about one risk is also a decision not to deal with another, perhaps more likely risk. Precautionary principle is a uh, principle used in uh, mostly environmental regulation, written into a few treaties. Uh, and uh, statements of purpose uh, at conferences and environmentalists hold and things like that. And the sort of the most popular version of it says something like this. When an activity raises threats of harm to human health or the environment, precautionary measures should be taken, even if some cause and effect relationships are not fully established scientifically. And I, I would reinterpret that and just say it, it means something like this. When some activity poses a possible risk to health, the government should take a possible or i'm sorry should take preventive action even if the evidence that the risk is uh, even if evidence of the risk is uncertain and the cost of regulation or preventive action is high and um i think that the precautionary principle is actually incoherent so i'm not sure it actually can be applied and when i say it's incoherent what i mean is that because resources are always limited because there's not infinite amounts of money um efforts to reduce one risk inevitably take resources away from activities meant to combat other risks, uh, whether through government programs or private investment savings, uh, ultimately are used to reduce uh, risks so that uh, wealth is sort of the ultimate risk reducer. Now, So there are some places where I would be perfectly comfortable having heavy amounts of regulation uh, or heavy amounts of preventive action against risk, but you can't apply the precautionary principle because it's actually incoherent. If you're talking about how uh, preventing risk through a precautionary principle takes resources away from private activities that may reduce that risk. Aren't defense policymakers the only people who can reduce that kind of risk? Certainly, they sort of have a monopoly on dealing with national security risks. It's not provided. Defenses against nuclear proliferation or terrorism are obviously not provided by the market, so it is certainly the government's job to do that. It's a traditional function of government to defend against dangers. My argument is that uh, we're over-investing against national security dangers and uh, the risks that we're concerned about that justify our defense budget, which is going to be $515 billion this year, not including the war, are actually pretty small, those dangers, and that they're built up. And they're justified if you read the strategy documents that uh, sort of lay out the intellectual case for what we do in defense. So I'm talking about the Quadrennial Defense Review, the National Security Strategy, the National Defense Strategy, I'm sorry, the National Military Strategy, which is actually separate from the National Security Strategy, and, and so on. Uh, the justifications are almost explicitly precautionary. They say something like almost what's in the uh, precautionary principle as I defined it. They say there are lots of very uncertain harms in the world. We don't really know the odds that... Uh, they're going to hurt us, but uh, because we don't know for sure, we have to act as if they're uh, nearly certain and, and uh, do things to prevent against them. And the justification, for instance, for the war in Iraq, the preemptive doctrine, uh, is almost the same thing as the precautionary principle. And I think it's similarly incoherent in that it's hiding choices among risks um, because the investment made to protect us against national security dangers is so high that it's taking lots of resources away from better uses. When politicians have to go out and essentially talk about the risk that we face, it's not a very saleable point to go out and say, 
well, we need to balance this risk and that risk, and we want to make sure that we're not over-investing in fighting terrorism or preventing terrorism. That's not a very saleable point. I assume that's why it hasn't succeeded and why the president hasn't called me and asked me for my advice on this stuff. But uh, not everything that's wise is uh, politically saleable. I do think, however, that it's more saleable than we generally hear than you're giving it credit for. Maybe uh, you see Ron Paul saying stuff in his presidential campaign that says, you know, we should calm down about terrorism. Mike Bloomberg, the mayor of New York, has said stuff about that. Uh, so I, I do think you can make the case that uh, we're overreacting to dangers. I do think it's politically possible. And I think when different uh, protections against risk that people like start to get into competition with each other and people see the choice that their government is making, then the politics get a little better. So, for instance, if it were articulated to the public that $515 billion being spent on defense uh, is money that can't go into health care, that can't uh, uh, go into their savings, they might be a little more cognizant of the problem, and it might be more politically saleable. Even when these ideas are in conflict, that is, trying to balance risks and, uh, and, and benefits even in dealing with uh, foreign policy and, and defense, it seems that the calculations made whether to invest this next dollar into this or that is a pol- ultimately a political calculation and is not a calculation based on whatever the science or evidence might indicate. Is there a, a way to move toward, toward that? I think so, and it, I, I agree with you, obviously. my The point I make in my article, The Terrible Ifs, is that better analysis is not going to correct the problem. Uh, you know, politics don't change because politicians in Washington, D.C. have epiphanies. You need uh, political wind shifting. With regard to the defense budget, uh, it's a terrible thing, but losing the war in Iraq changes the politics of defense in the country to the point where down the line it might convince people that the militarism, and I use that word on purpose, the militarism that's sort of pervaded the country for the last five years is not a viable foreign policy and it might uh, come up against the defense budget and cause people to reevaluate that. Uh, I think more specifically in things the government can do, you want to set up parts of the government like the Office of Management and Budget that look across the budget and compare different elements of it and see what's more effective in making people safer. Uh, in weigh investments in defense against investments in the Department of Health and Human Services and things like that. Within the Department of Defense, within the defense budget, we've had a tradition since the Kennedy administration where the shares that each service get are the same every year. So the Army gets the same amount of money, more or less. Now with the supplementals, they get a little more, but I'm talking about the base budget. The Army gets the same amount of money, the Air Force gets the same amount of money, the Navy does. And that gives the services an incentive not to fight. And when they don't fight, they don't denigrate the amount of protection or the efficacy of the protection the other services are providing, and you don't get a marketplace of ideas in the Pentagon. Instead, you get collusion where they all sell dangers and they have an incentive to increase the total defense budget rather than eating each other's lunch. And if I were running the Pentagon, I would try to create an environment where people try to eat each other's lunch because it creates a marketplace of ideas about defense that makes us and policymakers smarter about what's uh, efficient, what's an efficient use of resources, resources and what isn't. It seems as if the risks that uh, we know or are aware of and can plan for receive much less focus in media and uh, by politicians 
than the risks that are sort of shadowy and elusive. Right. Well, there's a couple things I would mention. And it's a difficult thing to sort of go through all the national security dangers we face in this country and say, well, they're not as big as you've heard, because that usually takes a lot of analysis. But as John Mueller, the political scientist at Ohio State, points out, in most years, more people die from allergic reactions to peanuts than terrorism. Uh, terrorists have had trouble organizing complex attacks since September 11th, largely because they're hounded by law enforcement around the world. And most importantly, the United States defense budget, the $515 billion that we just submitted to Congress, really has nothing to do with terrorism. Uh, not nothing to do, but not that much. We're buying fighters, F-22s. We're buying Army divisions. We're buying destroyers, ships, submarines. That stuff really doesn't do much against terrorism. So what's happened in the country since September 11th is we've become very concerned about national security, and we've invested all this money in stuff that doesn't even defend against the thing that we're concerned about. So this very odd situation in the country uh, where we're, we've basically bought a bunch of stuff that doesn't react to the danger that most concerns us. Um, the other point I wanted to make is to sort of try to explain why some risks are more salient to others, and you just hit on that a second ago. Uh, one reason you mentioned is that uh, risks that are cognitively available, is how psychologists would put it, stuff that create, create strong mental images like shark attacks or planes flying into buildings tend to provoke the media and they tend to provoke stronger reactions among the public than things that, uh, as you say, kill silently uh, or your average health risks, which don't create strong mental images. And there's, a, there's, a series of reasons for psych there's a series of psychological reasons why people react to certain dangers. So if they seem to be uncontrollable or if they're novel, that is, they're new and people don't understand them and aren't used to them, uh, people tend to overreact to them. So that's, there's one set of explanations for why people react to risks that way. And terrorism in particular hits a lot of those buttons. Another explanation is that cultures just sort of choose risks. And there's a book called Risk and Culture, by Aaron Woldowski and Mary Douglas about that, and says, why do the Europeans worry about genetically modified foods and Americans worry about secondhand smoke, or why do Americans worry about uh, national security dangers and Europeans worry about the environment? Well, they say it's just culture, and people teach each other this, and it spreads within a culture. My explanation is different. My explanation is political, and I say it has to do, at least our uh, precautionary principles in defense, have to do with collective action problem, where we have a very large national security establishment the elements of it, which are parts of Congress, the defense contractors, the military services, and a lot of intellectuals who sort of live off the beast, profit in a sense, or they're incentivized to uh, exaggerate dangers. They have a strong incentive to do that, and all of us are hurt a little bit by precautionary defenses because we pay higher taxes, but not enough to get motivated. So we have a collective action problem where some people are highly motivated to tell a story about danger, and some of us who are hurt by it don't have much incentive to fight against that story. So what we get are these explanations or justifications for the defense budget. We get no pushback. So we have what I would say is a failure in the marketplace of ideas. And I think that explains, uh, you know, how we wind up with a $515 billion defense budget that doesn't even deal with terrorism. Benjamin H. Friedman is a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies at the Cato Institute. He is author of the article, The Terrible Ifs, in the latest issue of Regulation Magazine, available at our website, cato.org.